Chapter 7 History's Most Durable Christians In Armenian tradition, the bishop who refused to die heals the murderous king of his beast-like madness, and they establish the longest-lived Christian nation. In the high mountains beyond the Black Sea's south coast were the two great rivers of the ancient history, the Tigris and the Euphrates, find their source. There have lived for something close to three millennia a nation of swarthy, tough, and fiercely independent people. These are the Armenians. In the last century and a half, they have migrated all over the world. Armenian surnames, identifiable because they almost always end in Ian or Yan, crowd the telephone books of Fresno in California's Great Central Valley and appear in the listings of every major North American city. Less familiar to the world at large, however, is Armenian history. They are first and longest-lived Christian nation. And from the 4th century onward, they have suffered and died for their faith by the tens of thousands. Armenia is a high country. Its mountainous plateau averages 4,500 feet above sea level. And on nearly every side, it rises above its neighbors like an island of rock. Many of its peaks are extinct volcanoes, which once filled up plains with flowing lava. This cool to become black and pink stone that is a distinctive mark of Armenian architecture. Armenia's most famous peak, of course, is Mount Ararat, the biblical landing place of Noah's Ark, and a foothold of faith for Armenia's generations of tenacious Christians. Spirituality apart, Armenia is otherwise decidedly inhospitable. On the high plains, winter is bitter, with ceaseless wind and temperatures falling to 40 degrees below zero. Many mountains are snow-covered year-round. Ancient nomads dug underground burrows to survive the lethal cold. Nomads they had to be, for the craggy landscape of ravines and canyons is uncongenial to all but herders and wanderers. It has been estimated that two-thirds of its land is not fit for human settlement. Yet, it was inhabited from the earliest reaches of human history, and some archaeologists believe that several Stone Age migrations into Europe began in Armenia. The ancient historian and geographer, Strabo, says that the land got its name from one Arminus, a companion of Jason and the Argonauts, heroes of ancient Greek mythology. However forbidding, Armenia's lands have been a recurrent battleground, not for their potential productivity, but for their location. Because of surrounding seas, mountains, and deserts, Armenia is a bottleneck in the well-worn human paths from east to west, and from north to south. Only by crossing Armenia's rocky terrain and subjugating its people would be, could would-be conquerors securely reach their objectives beyond. Most of those conquerors, people like the Medes or the Hittites, have long since faded into history. The Armenians have survived. Surviving is what they do best. Armenia's political history emerges from the midst of mythology. In the Iron Age, we are told Queen Semiramis of Assyria, lovesick for Armenia's Prince Arab the Fair, led an army into the land with hopes of making the young man her paramour by force. Instead, he died in battle, defending his honour to the last. The despondent queen then made her way back southward until she came to the shores of the beautiful Lake Van in the nation's centre. There, she built a gracious city and had a magnificent palace for herself carved into the sheer face of the cliff above it. The history confirms only that a certain King Aramu was indeed a contemporary of Queen Semiramis in the 9th century BC. 
and that during his time, the city of Van was founded and the nation's first and the land's first nation state, Urartu, similarity to Ararat, was established. Three centuries later, the biblical prophet Jeremiah mentions Urartu among the enemies of Babylon, and about the about then the land was overtaken by the Persians, conquerors destined to return many times. A subsequent Armenian dynasty rose under Orontos I, which was dealt a bitter blow by the invasion of Alexander the Great in the fourth century BC. About two hundred years later, a third Armenian dynasty brought the nation to its pinnacle of glory and made it briefly ascendant over much of the Middle East. King Tigranes the Great came to the throne about 100 years before the birth of Christ and spent the next half century building, and then losing, the greatest empire Armenia has ever known. He seized Syria to the west and pressed down through, the Phoenicia, the northern, through Phoenicia to northern Palestine, parts of Mesopotamia and Parthian, Parthian Persia to the south, and Iberia to the north, all fell to his armies. Ultimately, he ruled over 100,000 square miles, of which only a tenth remains to Armenia today. Tigranes was his own worst enemy. After he executed a messenger for bringing him bad news, no one dared tell him the truth about other crises as they arose. He executed two sons on suspicion of plotting to unseat him. A third son sought to save himself by conspiring with the king of Parthian Persia to bring an army against his father. Meanwhile, the king found himself surrounded by hostility. He had forced citizens of conquered lands to migrate and populate his new city, Tigranokurta. These were now eager to betray him and escape. It was Rome, however, that smashed Tigranes' empire. In 69 BC, Tigranokurta fell to readily fell to the general Lucellus, and much of the imported population speedily returned to their native lands. Three years later, the general Pompey marched into Armenia to do battle with the Parthian army mustered by Tigranes' son. Tigranes, now nearly 75, was at the end of his strength. He surrendered and spent his last days as a puppet king, paying docile tribute to Rome. The fall of Tigranes ended Armenia's era of worldly glory. Thereafter, and for the next 1700 years, it would play the unenviable role of buffer state between great empires. Persia to the east, Rome, Byzantium, and later Turkey to the west, the militant Islamic Arabs to the south, and one day Soviet Russia to the north. But at the dawn of the Christian era, the most dangerous enemy lay to the east, where the Parthian rulers of Persia, who were sometimes allies of Armenia, would gradually lose control to be replaced in the year 226 by far more aggressive successors, the Sassanids. They would set in motion the events that led to Armenia's conversion to Christianity. It was Persia, not Armenia, which had long been Rome's bane. The two empires, so different in faith and culture, remained locked in a battle of east versus west for more than a century before Christ and six centuries after. To the Romans, Persia was a wall that, success, that, that successive assaults failed to bring down. Thus, the Roman general Crassus met his doom at the Battle of Carhae, in 53 BC, Plutarch finishes the story. A wedding was being celebrated, he writes, between family members of the king of Parthia, Orodus II, and the king of Armenia, Artavaz II, yet another of Tigranes' sons. The two kings were enjoying a post-nuptial performance of Euripides' Bacchae when a soldier strode into the room 
bowed to the monarchs, and tossed Crassus's severed head into the crowd. This action elicited much glee, and the actress seized the glory object, using it as a prop while dancing and reciting her lines as a passion-deranged bacchante. For the first two centuries of the Christian era, Armenia remained a disputed territory, with Parthian Persia and Rome, each striving to maintain a favored candidate on Armenia's throne. For much of the time, Armenia was officially a vassal of Rome, while its, formal, while its ruling family was tied by blood to the kings of Persia, the Parthians. However, in 226, the Parthian dynasty fell to the bellicose Sassanids, who had no familial connection to the Armenians' royal house. The Armenians now discovered that formerly friendly Persia was an enemy. Henceforth, it must look westward for support. The Sassanids were to rule Persia for the next 400 years. They began with a massive offensive against Rome, based on ancient, an ancient claim. The Romans had seized territory that was properly Persia, as they said. It was territory conquered by the Persian Darius the Great 700 years ago, and it included all the Middle East and all of Asia Minor. For the new Sassanid king, Ardashir, and his son, Shapur I. First objective was the subjugation of Armenia. Beyond Armenia lay a far more tempting prize, luxurious Antioch, jewel of Syria, the largest city in the Roman Empire, and launching site of Paul's Christian mission to the Gentiles. Antioch was also headquarters of the Roman army of the East, but that did not impress Shapur I. In 256, or thereabouts, his army crossed into Mesopotamia, defeated the Roman frontier guard, and drew up before the city. It was a frightening spectacle, the nobility on horseback, peasants trailing after as foot soldiers. Then came mounted knights, known as cataphracts. Both they and their immense horses were covered with armory, armor from head to toe. The, the men peering through narrow eye holes and carrying long lances. Even the horses wore spiked helmets. Faced with such a galloping horde, gleaming in the sun and pounding the ground towards him, the opponent was expected to panic and run, and in fact, often did. But it turned out that Shapur did not need force to take the city. A high-born citizen named Mariatus betrayed it into his hands, if betrayal is the right word. The city's poor were growing increasingly resentful of Rome and viewed Persia as a deliverer. Mariatus himself chafed under the expensive obligation, laid on his family by Rome, of supplying horses for the public entertainments. Some say he had used his position to embezzle and had been ousted by the Romans in disgrace. Certainly there had been un recent unrest in Antioch, so disruptive that the crowds of the chariots race chariot races had split into Roman and anti-Roman factions, and the resulting riots had caused cancellation of the events. Perhaps Mariatus was in a position to know that the time was ripe for rebellion and connived with Shapur to surrender the city. As Shapur encircled the place, the wealthy classes fled in confusion, taking with them all the valuables they could carry and leaving the gates unguarded. The poor who remained hoped, no doubt, that Shapur would usher in a benevolent rule. They were to be bitterly disappointed. Shapur's soldiers rampaged through the city, sacking the houses and temples, raping and murdering, and finally burning much of Antioch to the ground. Mariatus too was killed, perhaps by his own countrymen, perhaps by Shapur who figured the turncoat to be just as capable of betraying him as he was of betraying Romans. Shapur returned to Persia, leading a long line of prisoners. Some were destined for the slavery that usually befell captives of war, but Shapur also took care to abduct whomever he could to find the city's remaining intellectual and scientific community. He settled these men in Persia, 
requiring them to produce wisdom for the good of their new home. One of these prisoners was the Christian bishop Demetrianus. The Roman emperor Valerian arrived too late to defend Antioch, found the city nearly deserted, and began to rebuild. Though trouble erupting on the other borders distracted him, and the work was not completed. In the summer of 260, his troops were sick and low in spirits. Then the unthinkable happened. Under circumstances that have remained obscure, the Emperor Valerian himself was taken captive. An unprecedented disaster. Then Shapur returned to Antioch. So suddenly, it was said, that an actor in a play at an outdoor amphitheater looked up at Mount Silpius and asked the audience, Am I dreaming, or have the Persians arrived? The answer came in the form of a shower of arrows raining down on the audience. Shapur's army immediately swept into the city, and once again looted, burned, and took prisoners. Back home, Shapur built himself a city which he triumphantly named Shapur's Better Than Antioch. Meanwhile, Armenia had not been idle. Its king, Khosrov I, as notable for daring as for military strategy, harassed and even invaded the Persian kingdom. Shapur repeatedly counterattacked into Armenia. It was in this decade of high tension and uncertainty that events began to unfold that would result <clears throat> in the conversion of Armenia to Christianity. The story has one source, Agathangelo's History of the Armenians, written in the latter half of the 5th century. A narrative so romantic that the faithful embrace it unexamined almost as readily as skeptics reject it, also unexamined. As far as Armenian Christians are concerned, the events it describes happened. Agathangelus plunges into the tale of an ancient war, of an account of a war council in the Persian court. Dismayed by Khosrov's continued victories, Shapur decided to attempt his assassination. The person who undertook this deed, the king promised, would be raised to second rank in the kingdom, next only to the monarch himself. A certain Enoch accepted the commission. He was a Parthian a member of the household overthrown by the Sassanids, who still had blood ties to the Armenian monarchy. Together with his brother, they moved their entire families, their sheep and herds, to Armenia, where they claimed to have revolted against Sassanid rulers. King Khosrov welcomed his relatives and included them in his deliberations as he planned a new invasion of Persia. At an opportune time, Anik and his brother asked Khosrov to step aside with them for a private consultation. Their swords, Agathangelis tells us, were already half-drawn. They stabbed Khosrov and fled. But with his last breath, the king ordered that the families of both men be massacred. The dying order was carried out in bloody detail. Even the women and children were slaughtered. One son, however, survived. This infant was spirited away by his nurse and carried to safety in Caesarea of Cappadocia, which was Roman territory. He would be known as Gregory. Shapur rejoiced to see Armenia now leaderless and vulnerable. He immediately marched into the country's country, seizing whatever he could and annihilating the remnants of Khosrov's clan. Khosrov's infant son was rescued, however, and delivered to the care of the Romans. While Gregory was being raised in Cappadocia, Tiridatus, heir to, the king, heir to King Khosrov, was growing up in the home of Licinius, a Roman who would one day become empire, emperor. There was one significant difference in the education of the two refugee children. Gregory was raised as a Christian. He became acquainted with the scriptures of God and drew near to the fear of the Lord, writes Agathangelos. When he learned, as a grown man, that his father had murdered Tiridatus' father, Gregory made a momentous decision. Leaving his two sons, he went to the 
to Tiridatus, and concealing his parentage, offered himself in humble service to the exiled king. Tiridatus had grown to be a man of immense physical strength. When he accompanied his protector, Licinius, to a battle against the Goths, he performed a feat that astonished his companions. They arrived at the city in the middle of the night and could find no forage for their horses. Tiridatus climbed over a high wall no one else could scale and threw back armloads of hay until the horses were well supplied, then used several useful donkeys over the wall as well. Licinius had never seen anything like this man. When they came to the place of battle, they found the Roman emperor in dismay. The leader of the Goths had challenged him to single combat, and because he was weak in bodily strength, Licinius was terrified. He suggested that Tiridatus stand in for the emperor. Robed in imperial purple, Tiridatus charged the Goth king on horseback and soundly defeated him. He was rewarded with imperial insignia and given command of an army, which he brought to the east, and used it to drive the Persians out of Armenia. Gregory had accompanied Tiridatus obediently all this time, but there was one thing on which he could not compromise, his Christian faith. During Tiridatus' first year as king, he brought his court to the city of Erez to, to worship at the temple of Anahet, a deity corresponding to the goddess known as Venus or Aphrodite in the Greco-Roman pantheon. After Tiridatus had made his sacrifices, he adjourned to his tent for feasting and hearty drinking, then ordered Gregory back to make further offerings. Gregory refused. Tiridatus was confused by this first sign of resistance in one who had served him so well, and Gregory's explanation did not please him. Know that you have made useless the services which you have rendered me, he declared, threatening his servant with prison and misery for dishonoring Anahet, the glory and of our race and savior. Agathangelos recounts Gregory's firm reply. He would continue to serve Christ and would consider even death merely a doorway to his closer presence. As for Anahet, such gods do not really exist. Your mind is deranged if you worship them. Tiridatus would not put up with such disrespect directed at himself and his god. He had Gregory subjected to torture, and week after week brought the prisoner before him to see whether he had repented. Each time Gregory found opportunity to further expound the faith, Tiridatus quickly realized that, for someone dedicated to a god who triumphed over death, threats of execution held no terrors. Instead, he determined to keep Gregory in lingering agony. Gregory was beaten, hung upside down, and his sides ripped open. Tiridatus's servants drove nails into the soles of Gregory's feet, then dragged him by the hand, forcing him to run. Yet, after each torture, Gregory resumed his patient teaching. Tiridatus was pondering a change of tactics, offering Gregory restoration and honors, if he would only submit, and he would not. Then, a member of the court came to Tiridatus with startling news. All this time, he has been living among us, and we did not recognize him. He is the son of the treacherous Anik, who killed your father. These words sealed Gregory's fate. Tiridatus ordered that he be kept bound by hand, bound hand and foot and cast down into a cavernous pit below the Acropolis in the city of Artishat. There in the blackness, Gregory was left to die, utterly forgotten. Tiridatus then busied himself with other exploits, harassing the Persians and showing himself as a man born to be a warrior. To ensure continued success in battle, he ordered that the gods be duly honored and that any who behaved toward them with disrespect, be turned in for punishment. He was haughty in dress and endowed with great strength and vigor, Agathangelos writes. He had solid bones and enormous body. He was incredibly brave and warlike, tall and broad of stature. He spent his whole life in war and gained triumphs in combat. 
combat. Meanwhile, Gregory had not died. For 13 years, he clung to life. Other prisoners were tossed down beside him and died due to snakes and fetid stench, but he survived. His endurance was assisted by a widow of the city, who had received the puzzling instruction in a dream to bake a loaf of bread every day and throw it into the pit. That meager daily ration kept Gregory near the, on the near side of starvation. Meanwhile, in Rome, the emperor Diocletian decided to search for a wife of sufficient beauty to equal his status. Portrait painters scored the emperor in search of the fairest faces, and in the course of this quest, broke into a Christian convent where they found women living modest and prayerful lives who maintained a cycle of worship both day and night. Their abbess was named Gaon, and the most beautiful of the nuns was named Ripshim. Diocletian was delighted at her portrait and began making wedding arrangements immediately. The nuns, perceiving what was afoot, stole away from the city and made their escape to a distant land, Armenia. They settled in the royal city of Valarshapat and made a shelter in the community winepress. One of the women knew the art of glassmaking, and the community was supported by the sale of her glass beads. Diocletian was not about to let them get away so easily, however, and sent an edict to all his territories urging authorities to search for these defiant women and punish them appropriately. It didn't take long for Tiridas' men to locate the woman hiding in the winepress, and within days, gossip about Ripsim's great beauty had filtered out to the city. Tiridatus wanted to see her for himself. He sent a golden letter to pick her up early one morning and included as well extravagant clothing and jewelry. As Gaian looked at these gifts, she recalled Ripsim's childhood in a wealthy, noble family. Remember, my child, that you have left and abandoned the honor and splendor of the golden throne for your fathers and the royal purple. So why then will you give your holy chastity as food to dogs in this barbarian land. Ripsim had no intention. She had put on faith from the years of her youth like an armored grass. She stretched out her arms and prayed in a loud voice, putting all her trust in God. The other nuns crowded around to her defense, but they were not able to protect her from Tiridatus' men, who carried the beautiful young woman to the palace. Once Tiridatus was alone with the girl, he was impressed with her beauty and decided to sample her charms. He seized her in order to work up his lustful desires, but Repsim was galvanized to feats of strength beyond her natural power and fought him off vigorously. Tiridatus was worsted by a single girl through the will and power of Christ. Tiridatus decided to try a different tactic. He sent servants to lock a, girl, lock a collar around Gaian's neck and drag her to the palace to talk some sense into the girl. Gaian did, ex did agree to speak to her. And while Tiridatus and Ripsim remained alone together in the inner chamber, Gaian was brought up to whisper through the door. But far from giving the advice they desired, she urged Ripsim to remain resolute and to never give in. When they realized what advice she was giving, they brought stones and struck her mouth until her teeth were knocked out, and they tried to force her to tell Ripsim to do the will of the king. Gaian still refused and continued to exhort the girl to stand firm in her faith. For this, Gaian received further beatings that shattered the bones of her face. Inside, the battle was going the other way. Ripsim, still endowed with superhuman strength, battered the king to exhaustion. She struck him, chased him, and overcame him. She wore the king out, weakened him, and felled him. She ripped off his elegant clothes and threw away his crown, leaving him covered with shame. Then, forcing the doors open, she ran out, cutting through the crowd, and no one was able to hold her. 
she managed to stop the wine press to inform her companions, then fled to a hilltop outside the city. It wasn't long before the executioners found her. Ripsine was stripped and staked to the ground. Torturers then applied the torches to her for a long time, burning and roasting her flesh. They used stones to disembowel her, and while she was still alive, they plucked out the Blessed One's eyes. Christians from the city hid nearby, hoping to give her an honorable burial, but the torturers caught and killed them as well. They tossed all the remains out as food for dogs and birds. The next morning, the chief executioner came to the king to learn what he, he wished done to Gan. It seems the events of the day before had unsettled Tiridatus's mind, and he asked that a search be made for Ipsim, and that she be persuaded to come back to him. When the executioner remarked that all the king's enemies should perish as Ripsim had, Tiridatus fell to the ground, weeping. He ordered the execution of Gaon and the remaining nuns, who were skinned alive, then decapitated. Then, all thirty-seven nuns and Christian townspeople were martyred. The king continued to grieve for Ripsim for six days, then arranged a hunting trip to distract him from his sorrows. But as he stood in his chariot preparing to leave the city, according to Agathangelos, an impure demon struck the king and knocked him down. A scene reminiscent of the madness of the ancient king Nebuchadnezzar was repeated, as Tiridatus began to rave and eat his own flesh, then to go on all floors, fours, grazing on the weeds and behaving like a boar. His servants were not able to restrain him, partly because of his natural strength and partly because of the force of the demons who had possessed him. This curse spread beyond the king himself, as other nobles and city leaders fell into similar torments and ruin spread across the country. Armenian church sets a style. Armenia's early architects didn't exactly invent the dome, but they did certainly perfect it, and its use in church construction spread as Christianity throughout the world. Gregory the Illuminator, national state and patron of Armenia, gets credit not only converting the pagan king Tiridatus, and thereupon the whole kingdom to Christianity, but also for building a church whose influence was profound. A small building constructed of stone about 301 was an important was it was important because of its placement. It marked a sacred or a sacred location that today holds a magnificent monastery, one regarded as the religious center of Armenia. The monastery of Ekmiadzin includes the magnificent cathedral built in about 480 AD on the site of Gregory's smaller church. It is the biggest and oldest church still standing in Armenia, and its construction with a central domed roof atop a square building sets the pattern for numerous churches in Armenia and elsewhere, many of which have survived for centuries. The basic domed cube style is usually expanded into a crumb cruciform shape with rounded additions or apses extended from each of the four walls of the interior square building. The dome structure was known elsewhere long before Christianity came to Armenia, but it was nevertheless perfected there, and its widespread use by the Armenian church builders influenced structures from Russian, Russia to Western Europe to the New World. Although the Kingdom of Armenia was divided and parceled out long ago, the result, as an endless series of brutal conquests, many smaller churches with their Armenian-style domes and plus signs, constructed construction still stand on land that is mostly Muslim now. The Armenian homeland has been carved up continually over the centuries, yet evidence of Armenian history is obvious in the myriad small churches scattered across the landscape of these now predominantly Muslim nations. 
Consider the quintessential example of Armenian church architecture. The Church of the Holy Cross sits on an island in Lake Van, Turkey. Built in the early 10th century under the direction of King Gagith I, it recapitulates styles that have been emerging for nearly 600 years. The high cruciform shape, 70 foot, high exceed, 70 foot height, exceeds the measure of both length and width, and a canonical dome are typical of nearly all Armenian churches, ancient and modern. Its exterior is made even more impressive by engravings and reliefs of biblical scenes and saints, included again one of St. George that richly decorated. Then, Tiridatus' sister, Kosraviduct, had a vision in the night. An angel told her that there was a prisoner named Gregory in the city of Arkshot, who alone could end the torments. When he comes, he will teach you the remedy for your ills. The people of the city were skeptical, skeptical about this vision. Surely Gregory had died within days of being cast into the pit. At this point, it would not even be possible to identify his bones. Kosraviduct acquiesced, but every night she continued to have the same vision now accompanied with warnings that if these instructions were not followed, the torments would grow worse. With great fear and hesitation, Kosraviduct again brought the message. This time, her words were heeded. A prince named Al-Ate went to Ertashat, where he had a thick rope to be lowered into the depths of the pit. He shouted, Gregory, if you are somewhere down there, come out. The god whom you worship has commanded that you be brought out. Far below, a hand took hold of the rope and shook it. Gregory was hauled up, blackened with filth, but alive. They hurriedly dressed him and took him to the royal palace in Valarshabat. King Tiridatus, who had been foraging with a herd of pigs, was also brought into the palace. When he saw Gregory, he ran toward him, foaming and tearing his own flesh with his teeth. Gregory prayed, and Tiridatus was returned to his senses. Gregory then asked to be shown the bodies of the martyrs. They were amazed that he knew about his, this crime. Gregory found the mutilated bodies intact, unharmed by beasts, and wrapped them in his own tattered garments. He then brought them back to the wine press, where he himself spent all night praying that the Armenians might be converted and find a way to repentance. In the morning, the king returned to his right mind and came to Gregory with his court. They asked, Forgive us all the evil crimes we have committed against you, and beg your God on our behalf that we perish not. Gregory then began a period of teaching that was to last over two months. He informed and enlightened them about everything, abbreviating nothing and speaking neither superficially nor hastily, writes Agathangelos. Like a wise doctor, he tried to find the appropriate remedy that he might heal their souls. Thus, beginning with the royal household, the conversion of Armenia was underway. In neighboring Persia, however, Christian fortunes were reversing. Christianity had made some inroads into Persia during the Parthian dynasty, when the national religion, Zoroastrianism, had fallen into neglect. The Sassanids encouraged its revival, developing for it a sacred book, the Avesta. Zoroastrianism was a form of religious dualism that envisions two gods locked in eternal warfare, and requires Zoroastrian followers to obey the good god, Ormuzd, and worship him in the form of fire. Sacred fire was tended in village temples as by priests or magi, hence the English word magic. During their first century, the Sassanids did not directly persecute Christians, perhaps because they were too busy making war, 
and perhaps because they presume that any movement so persecuted by Rome must be Persia's friend. But during the reign of Shapur II, which stretched throughout most of the 4th century, the power of the Zoroastrian priesthood began to be felt against anyone who departed from their faith. The brilliant visionary and syncretist Mani, founder of the faith, Manichaeanism, that attempted to blend every known religion of the time, was among its first victims. He was, his body was skinned and stuffed, then hung on a gate in the city of Gandhishabur. This event was so memorable that the place was called Mani's Gate for the next 800 years. The persecution of Christians wasn't far behind. Triggered unintentionally, perhaps by the Roman Emperor Constantine the Great, he sent a letter to Shapur II, drawing the king's attention to the Christians in his kingdom, who had fled there during the years when Constantine's predecessors had persecuted Christianity. He now regarded himself as a bishop of those outside the boundaries of the church, Constantine wrote, and pointed out how many Christian, many Roman emperors had suffered because of the persecuted Christians. I heard that the fairest districts of Persia are full of those men on whom I behalf, on whose behalf I am speaking, the Christians, Constantine wrote. Imagine my joy. Because your power is great, I ask you to protect them. Shapur's response was not altogether joyous. He began to harass the Christians, burdened them with exorbitant taxes, seized and demolished their churches, then brought their bishop Simeon before his court in chains. Despite threats, Simeon refused to worship the sacred fire and he was forced to watch over a hundred other Christians executed before his own head was struck off. The following year, before Easter, Shapur declared that all Christians must die. However, Shapur's beloved eunuch, Azadis, was swept up in this annihilation, and the grieving king modified his command. Only those who actually taught Christianity would be executed. Not much of a concession, observes the Christian historian Sozaman, writing in the early 5th century. He estimates 16,000 Persian Christians perished under the order. But in Armenia, Gregory continued his patient, though thorough teaching. He illuminated the hearts and souls of the people by his preaching, seasoning them with divine salt, writes Agathangelos, winning the, cong winning the cognomen by which he would be known uh, to history, Gregory the Illuminator. On Gregory's initiative, many pagan temples were destroyed, where for centuries, a confusing array of gods had required bloody sacrifices, including those of human beings. King Tiridatus went in prison, to, went in person, to Artashat to demolish the altar of Anahite, the altar at which Gregory had so persistently, and at the cost of years of imprisonment, refused to make sacrifice. As well, Gregory told Tiridatus that he had had a dream in which the heavens opened and Jesus Christ descended to strike the earth with a golden hammer. A golden pillar emerged topped by a column of fire and four crosses, which together formed an ark. Above this ark, there developed an immense church, with the cupola and a golden cross-topped throne yet above that. Of the, on the invasion site, Tiridatus helped Gregory raise an elaborate church. The site was the tomb of the 37 nuns and other Christians whom Tiridatus had martyred. The church was a wonder, but no less so was the transformation in Tiridatus. To the days to the end of his days, he never stopped confessing his terrible responsibility for the deaths of these martyrs and thanking God for his unimaginable compassion in granting him forgiveness and salvation nonetheless. All the while, Gregory had remained a layman, unable to baptize the hundreds who now sought to commit themselves to Christ. Tiridatus and his court urged him to accept ordination to the priesthood. He declined what he considered an undeserved honor, 
Besought by his people and encouraged by an angelic vision, however, he relented and returned with a company of Armenian nobles to the city where he had grown up, Caesarea of Cappadocia. There he was raised to the rank of bishop by Archbishop Leonidas Arlentius. On his return to Armenia, Gregory tackled his responsibilities with renewed energy. He traveled throughout the land, preaching and baptizing, ordaining the clergy, and establishing churches. Our whole land is converted. With their hearts and their assiduous, uh, with their hearts, they were assiduous in fasting and in the service of fear of God, writes Agathangelos, who then recounts what Armenian Christians revere as a sacred moment of their history. On the banks of the river Euphrates, just after dawn, Bishop Gregory meets King Tiridatus, his queen Ashkin, his daughter Kosrevedict, and the rest of his royal court. One by one, they are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This may be taken as the moment, says the Armenians, when their country became Christian, a position from which, despite fire, sword, misery, hostile governments, seductive propaganda, and centuries of persecution, they would never retreat. They were the first nation in the world to officially lay a claim to the faith. In one respect only was Gregory's work hampered. There was no written Armenian language. In the early days, prayers were offered in Greek or Syriac. Translation into written Armenian was difficult because there are consonants in the spoken language that cannot be represented by letters in Greek, Latin, or Semitic alphabets. The development of an alphabet to represent the Armenian language would not be completed for another hundred years. The work of a traveling preacher named Mesrop Mashtots, now honored as a saint. He worked out an elaboration of the Greek alphabet, adding letters as needed, and altering the shape of others so that all conform to a single style. 1,600 years later, Mesrop Mashtots' alphabet is still in use, a tribute to his creative skill. But Armenia's paganism did not die un unresisting or quickly. The priests of its cults and surviving temples undertook reprisals against Christians for decades after the conversion of Tiridatus. Even a century later, Christians were being martyred in, in Armenia. As Gregory aged, Tiridatus learned that he'd been married long ago, before he came to Armenia, and that he had two grown sons. The king sent an envoy to Caesarea, who returned with Vertanus and Aristarchus, the latter a monk reluctant to leave his desert retreat. He was persuaded to come, however, when told Christ had more important work for him to do. On their arrival in Armenia, Vertanus was ordered ordained a priest, while Aristotus was made a bishop, and took on much of his father's burden of work. For many generations, the rank of bishop would be handed down from father to son among Armenian Christians. It was Aristarchus who would represent Armenia at the Council of Nicaea in 325. That is the year, it is said, that Gregory died. He had long before slipped away from active life to spend time in prayer as a cave-dwelling hermit. No one witnessed his death. Some time later, shepherds found his body and went back to tell the people of a nearby town, Daranalik, that it was enveloped in a beautiful, unearthly fragrance. When they returned to take the body to an appropriate place of burial, however, the cave could not be found. Later still, a monk named Amra was told in a vision where he could find the body. Amra transferred it from the cave and buried Gregory next to his sons, and a magnificent church was built over the site. Tiridatus died a martyr to his faith. He was poisoned, writes Agathangelos, by pagans in the court circle who were irked by his strict Christian morality. Gregory the Illuminator departed the scene knowing he had introduced Armenia to Christianity. But the Armenians did not live happily ever after. 
In the following century, the Persians would pass a law requiring every Armenian to convert to Zoroastrianism. They rose in rebellion, a tiny nation against an enormous emperor. Triumph of a Slave Girl Both fact and fantasy no doubt lie behind the story of how a young woman's faith brought ancient Georgia to Christ. An enchanting account is preserved in both history and legend about the conversion of the people of the ancient land of Iberia, today called Georgia, on the east coast of the Black Sea, south of the Caucasus Mountains. In the 4th century, during the time of King Mirian III, a young Cappadocian woman, known as Nina, had been captured and brought to Iberia as a slave, and impressed all who saw her with her prayerful and chaste conduct. She simply told people she worshipped Christ as God. One day, a mother brought a sick child to Nina, who wrapped the child in her cloak and invoked the name of her Lord, and the child was cured. When Nana, Queen of Iberia, heard of the child's miraculous cure, she went to Nina, hoping to, that the maiden would cure her illness, and once again, in the name of Christ, the maiden effected a miraculous cure. The queen told the king, Marion, about her, but he was unconvinced. However, as the story goes, while on a hunt, Marion became lost in the mist, and a thick cloud or a solar eclipse darkened the sky. The frightened king's thoughts went to his wife and her new savior, Jesus Christ, and he vowed to believe. Instantly, the mist was lifted, the clouds dissipated, and the darkness passed. The royal conversion was complete. The king and queen then took instruction in the faith from Nina. They proclaimed their conversion throughout the land, and many of the people followed their lead. In the ancient capital of Mishika, the king began to build a church, but the builders were stymied by their inability to raise the main pillar, which remained stubbornly at an angle. The scene was set for Nina's next miracle. Throughout the night, she stayed at the construction site and prayed. In the morning, when the king and his people returned to the site, the pillar stood upright above its pedestal and then settled up into its base, perfectly balanced, securing the cathedral of the living pillar. The king then felled a, a tree sacred to the pagans, where in days past, animals were said to go to heal their wounds and had the wood fashioned into crosses. He sent an emissary to Constantine, asking that bishops and priests be sent to Iberia. Seeing Iberia embrace Christianity, Nina retreated to a cave on a mountain at Bode, where she died and was buried. Her tomb is still located in the local cathedral. Whatever its veracity, the story of Nina is singularly free of the more hair-raising elements so tragically common in the history of Christianity. It has a luminous, uplifting quality that perhaps make it uh, help, perhaps helped make its original source, the church history written by Rufinus in about 403, an early bestseller translated into Greek, Syriac, Armenian, Coptic, Arabic, and Ethiopic. The adorable, a durably popular and revered saint, Nina also claimed by the Armenians, and is often cited as a close relative of St. George by devout, if unverified, sources. The scrupulous historian Cyril Tumanov, in Studies in Christian Caucasian History, works diligently to nail down the dates of the conversion of King Mirian and the people of Iberia. By comparing, and testing the reliability of, 7th and 8th century sources with the date of a solar eclipse which fell on Wednesday, July 7, 334, Tumanov is able to come close to the historically cited 330 for the conversion of the king. 
He further endorses 337 as the year Iberia officially adopted Christianity as the state religion. He establishes Nina's arrival in Iberia in 324 and calculates that she began preaching in 328 and died in 338, 14 years after her arrival. That would mean that Georgia has been Christian outposts on the edge of Asia Minor since the time of Constantine. There is no way of knowing the reliability of Rufinus' own source, an Iberian prince named Bakur, but the Cathedral of the Living Pillar, destroyed by Tamerlane in the early 15th century and rebuilt, remains a tangible testimony to the prayer of power of prayer. And St. Nina's own tomb remains in Bodmin Cathedral, built in 850 on the original site of her church. The haunting story of the simple slave girl was, however, embellished by the chroniclers of antiquity. Nina acquired many adventures and distinctions over the centuries. In one story, the Blessed Virgin gives her a cross of grapevine wood and sends her to convert the Georgians. In another, Nina becomes one of 38 virgins captured by the lecherous King Tiridatus of Armenia, and she is miraculously the only one to escape. She has also been elevated to the status of Roman princess and transformed into a niece of the patriarchal Juvenile of Jerusalem, who unfortunately didn't live until the next century, and it is often her elaborated form that she rests in the hearts and imaginations of contemporary Georgians. Nina has fortified the Iberians and Georgians throughout their turbulent history. Despite centuries of cruel persecution by Persia, Arab, and Turkish invaders, and of course by its own native son, Soviet Russia's Joseph Stalin, Georgia continues to follow the lead of St. Nina. 70% of its population of about 5 million remains Orthodox Christian today. Thus does the story of the faith of a humble slave girl triumph over the vicissitudes of history.